Excellent. We're going to start differently. I'm going to show you a, uh, an extended clip from the Bible. Anyone see that little uh, mini-series thing? The, uh, the reason why I'm doing this is because uh, often with biblical characters, you don't think about them as real people. They, uh, they, they're kind of something else and you just think, well, they, they didn't go through what I went through. And So today I thought I'll show you a bit of a clip of, uh, I've kind of spliced all the Abraham stuff together. And as every uh, cinemagraphic rendition goes, the, uh, the book's better than the movie. Uh, because I, th I actually think they get Abraham pretty wrong at a few critical places and I've tried to leave that stuff out but um, you'll kind of see. I'm not going to spend a lot of time being critical of it because I think it, by, by and large it's pretty good and uh, it'll give you a bit of a sense of uh, Abraham as a real live person. Here we go. Do you get the sense of it? It's, it's, uh, it's pretty intense. I think they probably go... A little bit too far in exploring the humanity of uh, Abraham and, and Sarah but I think you get the sense of it it's a very serious somber occasion and I think it's important for us to uh, see something like that just to get a headspace in in the space that he was a real guy and and Sarah was a real lady and Isaac was a real kid and God, what God asked him to do was a real thing and uh, sometimes we can hear the names of uh, heroes of the faith in the, Bible's quite in the Bible quite often and we can get to the point where we just think it's not real. But it's very real there. And I hope you can see, I, I mean, I imagine probably there'd be some dads here who'd just be thinking, what if that was me? What, what if I was the one holding the knife above my kid? Because the Old Testament law was that the, uh, the firstborn belongs to the Lord unless a sacrifice is given to redeem them. And God was saying, I want my, the person that belongs to me, I want you to give him to me. It's very, very intense. So I'm just going to read Hebrews 11, if you've got your Bible there. I'm going to read Hebrews 11, verse 8 to 19. And today we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the inseparables of faith. Abraham teaches us a lot about faith. In fact, Abraham probably teaches the most about faith, probably of any Old Testament hero. And I think you'll see that hopefully by the end today. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Well, you could, we could preach on that for a few weeks. Straight up, that's pretty gutsy. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, because he was so old, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore." We're his descendants. That's what the Bible teaches. If you're a Christian and you follow God and you're part of God's family, you're his descendant. We're part of the stars in the sky. By faith, sorry, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. You saw that on the screen. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Check verse 19 out. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham is a giant of the faith, and Abraham teaches us three things about faith. Here's the first one. Abraham teaches us that faith and obedience are inseparable, that faith and risk are inseparable, and that homesickness and endurance are inseparable. The first one, Abraham teaches us that faith and obedience are inseparable. If you go back to the original narrative in uh, Genesis chapter 12, here's how it goes. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. And I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What does Abraham do? So Abraham went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. This is the way the uh, writer of Hebrews cashes it out. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. As I was doing my preparation for the message this week, one of the commentators actually said, if you actually interpret the original Greek in this phrase or this sentence here of Hebrews 11 verse 8, they actually say it's... The, the, it's a bit of a clumsy interpretation, but they actually say Abraham obeyed while God's call was still in his ears. You see that? He actually, he was in the process of obedience while God was still calling him. And I think one of the things that we actually, uh, we actually do um, to a large extent, I think, in, in Christianity is we separate faith and obedience. And I don't, obedience and faith are never, ever meant to be separate. They're not two separate entities. You see, here's Abraham. What's he doing? God says, I want you to go. And he's going, where do you want me to go? Where am I going? Am I supposed to buy a house there? Are we doing a swag thing? Am I going to squat somewhere in some old run-down building? Do I need a tent? He doesn't ask any of those questions. He just goes. And he goes when called. He leaves the certainties of what he knows and he goes out into the complete unknown to him. And he's relying on nothing other than what God says. That's all he's relying on. And that's enough for Abraham. Now, you might sit there and you might go, well, I couldn't do it. Yes, you could do that. And you can do that. That's how it's meant to work. This is not, what a hero, I could never be like that. This is, this is how God wants to move in you. This is how God wants to change you. This is how God wants to lead you. And I'd, I'd submit this question to you at this point in time. When did obedience become optional for Christians? When did it come, become optional? I want to show you a couple of scriptures in the Bible that talk about the connection of obedience and faith. First one's from... Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. Notice this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, this is his uh, 
prelude in a sense. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about what? Come on, a little, bring about what? The obedience of faith, right? You notice that? The obedience of faith. So at the beginning of Romans, Paul is going, you can't, you don't have faith. It's like if I asked you, can you be a believing, faith-filled, disobedient Christian? What would you say? No, you can't. You, like you can't do that. It's like a, uh, you've got a crisis in your definition if you think that you can just be disobedient and be a faith-filled Christian. Because faith is active trust. So what you're really saying, someone who says, I've got an option and I can choose to be disobedient is saying, I cannot actively trust God with what he asked me to do, but still say that I'm an active truster of God. I'm someone with faith. Do you get what I'm saying? It doesn't work. Like you can't do it. Faith and obedience are intrinsically linked. And I think uh, Abraham teaches us they're inseparable. The second scripture I just wanted to show you is uh, one that's haunted me for a good while now and that's 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 to 20. This is a a passage on sexual immorality but Paul makes this really interesting point at the end. He says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. This might sound a bit random but let me uh, submit this question to you and it's similar to the one before. Why do you think If you've given your life to Jesus, if you're a Christian here today and you belong to him, why do you think you've even got a choice about obedience? Because a lot of the time that's where we're at. A temptation comes along and and, and we sit and we think, well, I can either choose to do this or not. You're not your own anymore. You don't belong to you. When you belong to you, you were taking you to hell. All right? And the best thing that ever happened to you is that Jesus loved you and he saved you and he redeemed you and he purchased you. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him. Now, he's very, very good. And he will be a very, very good king for you and a very, very good father and a very, very good saviour and a very, very good purifier and redeemer and changer and helper. Amen? But you're not yours. So you should never... Like, I think... It probably... Don't be offended, right? But here's the thing. I think it offends God when people think that they've got a choice about whether they can be obedient or not. That's offensive, all right? Now, he's pretty good with people who offend him, okay? He died on the cross for people who offend him. That's his deal, right? But you just need to know that a Christian that sits down and thinks, well, I can either do this or not, is not thinking in the same way that the Scriptures think. Now, does it happen that Christians are disobedient? Yes, right, because some of you go, oh, Sondergill, I bet you he hasn't had a perfect week. Absolutely, all right? But I'm telling you this, if Sondergill doesn't have a perfect week, the days when he's disobedient, he's more like someone who doesn't even know Jesus than he is like someone who belongs in his family. And it comes back to that whole identity thing that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, if you were here. You see, disobedience is not faith. Disobedience is unfaith. Disobedience is unbelief. You can't be a Christian, have faith, active trust and then be disobedient. That just doesn't work. It does not compute. 
If it was a Windows software program, you'd get a blue screen, right? At that point, no OCD. You know, it's like the blue screen of death. If you guys notice that, it probably doesn't happen as much these days, but yeah, I remember having Windows Vista, man. That was terrible. You know, you get the blue screen and you just go, that's it. It's your computer's decided to kill itself and, it's, and you just got to mop up. So here's the thing. God's calling you, all of you, in specific ways that I don't know about, to obey him and to follow him into areas that you don't see. For some of you, it would be a big enough step of faith for you to ask to go to a community group. All right? For some people, some people struggle so much and they struggle emotionally within themselves, the smallest thing might actually be the biggest step of faith into the unknown for them. For some people, even asking for help can be a huge step of faith. True? So you don't have to be like Abraham and literally go home and pack your gear up in the trailer and start driving west and not know where you're going, all right? But I do know that there's stuff in each of your lives that God wants to draw you into what's unknown. And you don't... Here's the thing, I'm just telling you, that's going to be the best for you, but you shouldn't even think you've got an option as to whether you go with God into the unknown or not. You should just go with him because that's what his kids do. They just go with him and he's a good guy, right? Amen? He's a good guy, so you just go with him and you trust him, you actively trust him and you move into what you don't actually know. We need to be more like Abraham, don't we? Don't we? We need to be more like Abraham. You see, it might even come down to something like sharing about Jesus with someone at work. We're really nervous. See, that's faith, isn't it? What's going to happen? I don't know. Maybe you're going to get toweled up. That happens. You get to the back end of Hebrews 11 and people are getting sawn in half. People who love Jesus get sawn in half. All right? They get made into lampposts in a garden. They cover them in tar and set them alight. That happens to people who love Jesus. That might happen. Probably not in Australia, at least a person will end up in jail if that happens. All right? If you hear a chainsaw starting, run. No, I'm kidding. Do you get my point? I don't know what's going to happen, but neither did Abraham. He didn't even know where he was going, but he just went. Now, that would be amazing. Like, you think about the project, everyone here today, I don't know what, 80, 90 of them. Imagine 80 to 90 people not even thinking about the unknown as much as just God wants me to go and do this particular thing. Some of you, I think, actually get senses and maybe the Holy Spirit speaks to you a little bit and gives you some kind of words of discernment. You don't tell anyone. You need to start telling people, all right? Now, it's a risk because people go, they're loony. I don't know, maybe you are. doesn't matter. If you think you got something from God, you need to share it. You need to encourage people. Take a step of faith into the unknown and just, you know, I talked last week about the fact that faith, I think it was last week, I forget when I say stuff, but it's like a free fall. You jump out of the plane and there's free fall until the, you pull the rip cord, right? And there's always the free fall, okay? You get your mouth guard in and clench your teeth as tight as you can and just enjoy the wind as it rushes past you, right? Because the free fall is critical that you trust God in that and you push through that to see what God actually wants to do. That's point one. Faith and obedience are inseparable. Point two, faith and risk are inseparable. You guys love risk, don't you? Here's Hebrews 8, 11 verse 8. 
and 17 to 19. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive it as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Some dudes here are just going, that's cool, I've just solved some marital disputes, all right? You shouldn't have to look at maps when you go driving. It's biblical, all right? You just go, <laughs> wife's going, pull over and ask someone for help. No, it says in, in Hebrews, he didn't know where he was going, I'm going to be like Abraham, all right? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Huge risk there for Abraham, right? Now, you don't see anywhere in the scriptures where Abraham sits down and he starts having this internal debate about what God said and whether God's going to come through on it, what evidence have I got, and he just, all right, okay, if that's what I've got to do, I've just got to go and do it. Here's the backstory. Genesis 22, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. There you go again. God's not telling him where to, which mountain. He's just going, just go. And Abraham's kind of, okay. Check this out. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Again, faith and obedience are inseparable. He doesn't, I mean, it, it almost looks like he had a good sleep, got up the next morning, let's go and get this done. Saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, this is really interesting, right? And let me tell you what's really interesting about this. If the original kind of, uh, if you, go, you don't even need to go to the original. If you just go to different versions of the Bible, you can check them all. I checked about eight and a lot of them actually, that phrase at the end there, I and the boy will go over there and worship and we will come again back to you. So think about that. Abraham's thinking, I'm going to go and kill my son and then both of us are going to come back. Oh, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? That's, that's Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11 saying he thought God could raise him from the dead. So he's going over there and this is where I think the Bible gets it pretty badly wrong because there's all this tension and this, uh, you know, Sarah at the end there is running up trying to stop Abraham from killing his son and you just don't get that picture from the Scriptures. The picture from the Scriptures is Abraham thinking, well, I'm just going to go and kill him, then God's going to fix him up and we're coming back and we'll see you in a bit. And this is, you know, I mean, I reckon, Abraham, you ever watched a TV show or a movie and the hero looks like he's going to get killed or she's going to get killed and you're just, you're freaking out. You're just going, this is bad, right? The good guy's going to die. And, but then you just start reassuring yourself and you go, well, they can't die. The good guy just can't die. You, you ever had one of those? I reckon this is a bit of what Abraham's thinking. He's been told that it's all going to come through Isaac, right? And he doesn't really get caught up in this emotion, it appears, where he thinks, well, this is the good guy. He, he can't die because he knows he can't die. 
and he knows God's promise. So what he does is he just goes, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm just going to go and I'm going to kill my son and somehow God's going to get this sorted so it all works out well and I have as many descendants as the sand on the seashore. That's pretty gutsy, right? And the interesting thing is, Abraham actually thinks, this is the really interesting thing about risk and God, is Abraham actually thinks what God's going to do is he's going to raise his son from the dead, not provide a ram stuck in the bushes by the horns. Which is what happens. Isn't that interesting? And this is the interesting thing about risk. You take a risk for God, and you might have an idea about how you think it's going to work out, but most of the time it's going to be different, but it'll be perfect. Risk is central to faith. I want to give you a couple of quick scriptures uh, about risk. There's this story in the Old Testament um, where uh, the army of Israel had a bit of a fracas with uh, the Ammonites, all right? A bit of a fight, a bit of a battle. And uh, the commander, Joab, of the army works out a bit of a battle plan. Check this out. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people. And listen to this. And for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. They could get whacked, right? He's just going, this is the chance we're going to take and let God just look after the rest. It may come through, it may not. And God comes through for them. Let me give you another one. Esther, in the book of Esther, it's when the uh, Israelites were in uh, exile at a Persian king and some tricky dude decided he was going to organise this edict for all of the Jews to be slaughtered on the same day. And basically the law was you had to kill every Jew that you found in the uh, nation and then steal their stuff, all right? And it came down to this one lady, Esther, and she was queen. But the thing was, with a Persian king, you couldn't walk into his uh, inner court unless you were invited. And if you walked in uninvited, they'd kill you. What's she going to do? Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, which was uh, someone that she was working with to try and save the Jews. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And they all get saved because one lady decided she was going to go in and take a massive risk. And if God comes through, that's really sweet. If he doesn't, it doesn't matter. I'm going to take the chance. What about rebellious faith? In the book of Daniel, there's a story about three guys. My parents always uh, used to call them shake the bed, make the bed, and the bed we go. But they're actually Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right? And their deal was the king set up this big statue of himself, told everyone to bow down to it. They said, we're not doing it. So they didn't. He says, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. Here's what happens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He will, there's no doubt. But if not, isn't that interesting? You just think, well, aren't they saying he's going to deliver us? And this is the interesting thing. 
they're talking about God delivering them from the fire, but God always delivers his people, though not always physically, not always the way that we want. You can see that in the back end of Hebrews 11. But note this, God will deliver us, but if he doesn't, you know, some churches probably would say, that's a real lack of faith, isn't it? Well, I don't think it is. I don't think it is a lack of faith. You've got these three guys in there going, we're not bound down. And listen, God might save us from the fire. He might not. We actually don't give a rat, right, about whether he actually saves us or not. Okay? We're, uh, we're just going to do it anyway. We're, we're not going to bow down to you. We're going to do what we've decided that we're going to do anyway. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Story goes, they get thrown in the furnace. The dudes who throw them in die because they heated it up, I think, seven times hotter. Then there turns out to be some other dude walking around in there. So there were four dudes walking in there. They didn't even get their hair singed. They walked out. Everything was sweet. What about Jonathan? I love this one. It's probably my favourite. Jonathan's uh, with his father, Saul, and uh, they're having a bit of an issue with the Philistines. Jonathan and his armour bearer decide to sneak out of camp because they want to have a bit of a crack at some Philistines, right? Um, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armour, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us. See that? It, it, well, he might. We, we, we'll just take, we'll have a shot. Maybe. And what about... Um, well, we'll get to that in a sec. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And what about his armour bearer? And his armour bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, on with your heart and soul. And isn't that precious, man? If you're going to be someone who's actually going to take a risk, isn't it precious to have people beside you who just go, I'm, I'm right with you, man. I'm sitting right in the pocket behind you and I'm supporting you. I mean, he's the dude that's got to protect Jonathan and Jonathan's the dude that's got to kill people. That's kind of how it works, all right? Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come up to you, then we'll stand still in our place and we'll not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we'll go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. I mean, it seems so arbitrary, doesn't it? They go over, there's a hill there, there's a bunch of dudes, I think about 20 or 30 dudes up on top of a hill, and they're just making this plan up. Well, if they call us up, they say, We're going to give you a butt whipping, all right? We'll say, that's the Lord, so we'll go up. But if they say, no, we're coming down, that's not the Lord, so we'll back off. They go over there, Philistines say, come up here, we're going to give you a good toweling. All right, they get up there and Jonathan on his own with his armour bearer, basically it says he kills about 20 dudes within about an acre of land on his own. And then what happens is the uh, people of Israel or the army of Israel launches this assault on the Philistines because they hear this uproar that's going on up there. Risk is central to being a follower of Christ. It's central and inseparable from faith. So let me ask you, what are you attempting that's beyond you? What are you attempting that has no plan B? What are you attempting that has no insurance What are you attempting and planning to do for the glory of God and for the good of others that would leave you really embarrassed if it didn't come off? Every single one of those situations I just showed you could have ended really, really badly. But that's the nature of faith. Faith and risk are inseparable. Point three. 
homelessness, sorry, homesickness and endurance are inseparable. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you know something? Abraham left his place and God sent him into the land of Canaan, which was the promised land which God said he was going to give Abraham. But do you know for the whole of Abraham's life, he never, ever owned any land in there? Never. So if you actually look there at that scripture, notice what it says? By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. He's actually in the land that God's promised to him, but he doesn't own any of it and he's living there as a foreigner. In fact, if you look at... um, Genesis 23 verse 1 to 4 later you'll actually find out there's a scripture that talks about Sarah lived 127 years and when Sarah died Abraham went and asked for a piece of land where he could bury his wife because he didn't have anything. Acts 7 verse 5 speaks of uh, Abraham when it says God gave Abraham no inheritance in the land not even a foot's length not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. You see, God was teaching Abraham that home is not on this earth. You see, God promised to to get him into the promised land, the land that was his inheritance, but he was still a foreigner in the land. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain this even more in uh, verse 13 to 16. Think about this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now, you've got to hear that because the writer of Hebrews sometimes talks about the fact that people receive what was promised. Now, in a sense, uh, Abraham received Isaac, didn't he? And that was one of the promises. But he didn't receive it in its fullness. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Faith is not a wager where you put a little bit of money on it but you keep some in your pocket. Faith is something that you put all of your money on. And I want to ask you this morning, can you identify with the people of faith in 13 to 16 of Hebrews 11? Are you feverishly trying to make this place your home? And in doing so, have you felt the the jarring, thwarting nature of this planet? You know, every time you try and build this place into a home that's really comfortable for you, something happens, something breaks, uh, some relationships break down. It just never works out the way you want it to work out. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And it doesn't matter how much effort you put into it, it doesn't work out. And it's really irritating. Anyone irritated today that things just don't work out the way they're supposed to? A few people, right? And I'm telling you, the reason why is because it's not home. This is not home. You're not home. And you've got to stop making it home and trying to make it home and make it a place where nothing bad ever happens. Notice up here in this scripture here, it says, 
In verse 14 there, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land, other translations translate that phrase, if they had a heart that was still in the other country, they might have gone back. You don't have a heart that's in this country, right? In terms of destiny. Amen? You don't. But the thing is, a lot of the time we try and invest our heart into it and we try and invest everything into this, into this country and we try to make it our home and it really irritates us because it does work as a good home and a comfortable home and a, a safe and secure home maybe for about 10 seconds sometimes. And then something happens. And some of you are going, well, he's a pessimist. No, he's not a pessimist, right? I like to think I'm a realist. That's just what happens. And that's what, was, uh, kind of what, that's what God said was going to be one of the curses in Genesis chapter 3. And notice up there, right at the end there, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What tense is that? Present, past or future? The last last phrase, he has prepared a city for them. It's past, right? It's already done. Like you've just got a way better home that God's already sorted out for you and you've just got to look to that and you've got to get homesick for it and some of you just aren't homesick enough and you don't think about heaven enough. I remember this uh, old saying that they, uh, they used to be throwing around that someone's so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. Has anyone ever heard that? Now listen, here's the thing. If you're totally disconnected from your culture, you're pretty useless to the kingdom, all right? So you've got to be connected, but I'm telling you, you can't be heavenly minded enough. True? You can't be heavenly minded enough. You need to get to the point, and I've been thinking about this and evaluating my own heart this week. You know, I think I've got a sliver of plan B in my heart if following Jesus doesn't work out. I don't even know what the plan is. I just know that I've got this nagging thought every now and then that, you know, I'm just going to orchestrate a few things. So just in case it doesn't work out following Jesus, I'm just going to have another option. These guys don't have another option. It's like they're putting everything on one option. It's like if you went to a casino, like if this was a casino and it's not, and we don't think you should go and gamble, right? But if you went to a casino and you saw a Christian doing something like this, you'd go, you're crazy, man. You are absolutely nuts. These are people that have burnt their bridges. You're made for something different, people. You're not made for this place. And let me ask you this. Does it look like, to all the people that watch you and observe you, and people watch you and observe you, does it look like that you're seeking another homeland? Or does it look like you're seeking the same homeland as everyone else? I think some of you do look like you're seeking another homeland. I'm not asking you that question because I think no one's doing it. But that would be an interesting question. This is one of the questions for community groups this week. Tell me, does it look like I seek another homeland or does it look like I'm trying to make this home? If you look so much like your next door neighbours in the way that you do cars, wealth, houses the way that you spend your time, that they're not even persuaded that there's anything weird about you. 
you're probably trying to make this place home. And most of the way through that clip, you're probably thinking, why did he show that? Did you hear that last, that last line? The goal is to find a place where everyone can call home. Because the truth is, if you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, this world's not your home. But you know what? It's not really home for people who don't follow Jesus anymore either. Because it's messy. And if you're someone here today and you don't follow Jesus, there's an opportunity for you to get a home. You know, home's meant to be the place where you go to and you kick your feet up and it's safe and people love you and it's secure and you, you don't feel there's any risk of harm. That's what God promises people who follow him. He's already built it. He's already built it. And you better get more obsessed with it. All right? Even if you're pretty obsessed with it now, you better get more obsessed with it because it's that good. I'm going to read you a, uh, a kid's story out of the, the Jesus Storybook Bible and there's not many kids in here so I'm not really doing it for the kids but some of you might think, oh, that's a bit childish. Maybe. When my pop became a Christian, he didn't have a Bible and he went to the local bookstore in Pittsworth and bought a kid's story Bible because that's all he could get. And there's something... I remember going with my dad to his house and my dad goes, what have you got that for? It's my dad's dad. And uh, he basically said that's all he could get. So dad went and bought him a Bible. But he had a hunger for God and he just had to get some truth about God and hear about God. And that's all he could get. But there's a cool thing about kids' story Bibles and I love this about the Jesus Storybook Bible is that it makes God sound attractive and good and a direction that you'd want to head in. And sometimes I think uh, we don't always do that with God. So I'm going to read you the last story in the book, which is about John and his uh, revelation of heaven. I've got some pictures for you. There you go. How's that? John was one of Jesus' helpers. He was old now and living on an island, which might sound nice, except it was a prison. The leaders put him there to stop him from talking about Jesus. But I'm sure you don't think a little thing like being in a cell in a prison on an island in the middle of an ocean could stop God's plan, do you? One morning, Jesus appeared right there in John's cell. John's eyes were bright, shining like the sun. I'm going to show you a secret, John, Jesus said. About when I come back. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. Write down what you see so that God's children can read it and wait with happy excitement. That's you. You're meant to wait with happy excitement. Then Jesus gave John a beautiful dream. Except John was wide awake and what he saw was real and one day it would all come true. I see a throne and on the throne is a king. And the king's Jesus. All around the throne, people are bowing down. They're giving him their treasures. There are loud cheers and clapping, clapping and bright laughter like a thousand waterfalls and everyone bursts out singing a new song. This is our king, the lamb who died so we don't have to. Our rescuer. All honour and glory forever and ever and every creature everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea joins in. And then from all around, a wide, immense, beautiful silence. And I see Satan, God's horrible enemy, thrown down and defeated. I see a sparkling city 
shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven and from the sky. Heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Its walls of topaz and jasper and sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where's the sun? Where's the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness, no more night. And the king says this, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I've wiped every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, Look, I'm making everything new. It was hard to squeeze all John saw into words and fit it onto a page and cram it into a book. All the words on all the pages of all the books in all the world would never be enough. I am the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem just like a shadow that's chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book. But he didn't write the end because, of course, that's our story's finish. This one's not over yet. So instead, he wrote, Come quickly, Jesus, which is perhaps just another way of saying to be continued. That was probably the worst read story in my life because I'm emotional about it, to be honest. Like I, you guys don't know, but I get emotional about stuff when I preach. And there's nothing that I want more than to go and be with Christ at home. I want that. And I've had moments where I sit and I hope he'd walk through that door and he'd just finish it all and fix everything and fix me and take me to be with him. And I pray that you would feel like that too. Because if you love him, he's coming for you. He's not just coming for a billion people, he's coming for you and a billion people. You won't be lost in it. And he's coming and he'll look after you. But he wants you now to act like this is not home because it's not. This is a really disappointing home if this is it. Amen? And there's struggles probably in this group of people that I don't know about. There's probably some that I do know about. And he's going to make that all right. He's going to fix it all. Why don't you stand with me and uh, I'll pray. If you're not a Christian here today, 
you need to reach out to God. Because he's built an inheritance for those who reach out to him. You can't even dream about how good it's going to be. God, we want to be with you. Yeah, we're with you now. You're with us. But we want to be with you. We want to go for a walk with you. We want to talk to you out loud. God, help us to look forward to home. God, forgive us for making this place home. It's not home. It's a sucky home. It's terrible. Yeah, there's some good stuff in it and you do lots of good stuff and we appreciate that and you, you bless us with stuff. And we've got nice houses and cars. And, but that's not enough. We just want to tell you that's not enough for us and that's not a good enough home for us. And God, I pray that you just build in us a holy dissatisfaction for this place. And that our heart wouldn't be in this place any longer. But that would be future-oriented. And God would endure because it's going to be so good. And we wouldn't give up because it's going to be so good. And we'd obey you because it's going to be so good. And we'd take risks because it's going to be so good. Amen.